Welcome to Work and Play, the award-winning podcast of Constangy Brooks, Smith & Profit, where we discuss employment news and provide practical insights and tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Bill McMahon. Today's episode is actually part one of a two-part series on non-compete agreements and traps for the unwary. My guest is one of my partners here in the Winston-Salem office, Ken Carlson. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be here. Yeah, if you could, uh, for our listeners, if you could introduce who you are and uh, why you're here today. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm here because you invited me, of course. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> but I'm a partner with Constantia Brooks Smith and Profit. You know, we're uh, for those who aren't aware, we're a labor and employment law defense firm out of Atlanta. I'm in the Winston-Salem office here with you. And a good portion of my practice through the years has been in covenants not to compete and trade secret law. Uh, for the past 19 years, I've actually taught a course on that at the Wake Forest University School of Law. It's an exciting, dynamic field. I do quite a few seminars and CLEs on the topic, uh, and I'm excited about uh, discussing it today. A lot of interesting developments, and in, even in recent times here. That's great. Well, thanks for joining the podcast. And the the topic for today's podcast is non-compete agreements and specifically traps for the unwary as far as those go. So, Ken, thank you so much for being on. And uh, as far as guests go, I don't think we could have a more qualified person to talk about this. Um, well, you are kind, but there are many traps for the unwary. So I'm going to look forward to covering <laughs> some of them today. Exactly. Um, I, I want to start at a very basic level on this topic. Um, there are obviously a lot of folks that have used non-compete agreements before, are familiar with them. Uh, some folks may not be, though. So can we kind of start at the very baseline level and just talk about what a non-compete agreement actually is? Sure. And that's a great uh, initial uh, question because there is a lot of confusion uh, amongst uh, employers, uh, uh, the, those who sign the uh, non-compete agreements, and frankly, the media and uh, unfortunately, our government officials too. So I'm going to draw a few distinctions between a couple of the more common agreements that we see out there. One is a non compete agreement, often called a covenant not to compete or a non-competition agreement. And then there are non-solicitation agreements, which are kind of a close cousin to a non-compete agreement, uh, but are often confused. And then there's a separate, separate subset of law in this whole realm of unfair competition called trade secret law. We're not going to really get to that today. But when you see a traditional covenant not to compete, non-compete agreement, whatever you might call it, it will often have three components. Not always, but it will often have three. It will have a confidentiality provision, uh, which addresses more of the trade secret and confidential information issues of a company. It will have a non-compete section, which is the covenants not to compete that we're going to be primarily talking about. And it will often have a non-solicitation section. And that's a restrictive covenant that's usually formulated in two ways, non-solicitation of customers and non-solicitation of employees, assuming it has that added element to it, but we often see it. And those are really three distinct areas that we often see in the same restrictive covenant agreement. That's often called, for lack of a better term, I guess, collectively, a covenant not to compete. All right. That, that, that's a great breakdown, Ken. I definitely appreciate that. And I, yeah, to your point for today's episode, we're really focusing, I guess, on that second part. Uh, which is the kind of the meat and potatoes non-compete agreement, the whole idea of preventing one of your employees from going to work for a competitor, um, you know, and, 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 you know, other work along those same lines. 
Absolutely. And Uh, and let me just let me just say this, because a cornerstone to that section of what we're going to talk about today in the restrictive covenants actually overlaps with the other two. Uh, Virtually every jurisdiction at some point in their history of case law, you're going to see some court which is said which will say that the cornerstone of covenant not to compete law in this state is the protection of confidential information and the protection of a company and employer's client base. So those two fundamental cornerstones are often part and parcel to that larger restrictive covenant idea. But the non-compete agreements, the, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, are, are really those um, restrictive covenants that, um, that prohibit for a certain period of time or restrict for a certain period of time a employee or a former employee, I should say,'s ability to be employed by another company in a competitive way within a certain geographical territory. And uh, the primary, and it's only for a limited period of time. So we'll get into those distinctions a bit a bit more later, uh, I'm sure. But uh, a key uh, clarification between a non-compete agreement and a non-solicitation agreement is that in its purest sense, a non-solicitation agreement, let's say a non-solicitation of customers agreement, which prohibits, restricts the employee for a period of time after employment ends from calling upon the company's customers, of which we could spend a lot of time defining what customers might be. But technically, if that's all it is, uh, that individual could set up shop, new employment, create their own uh, company, work for an employer right across the street, right next door, uh, as soon as they leave employment, as long as they leave the customer base alone for a particular period of time. And that's right. the key distinction. Non-compete right. is not working for a competitive employer or starting your own competitive business for a certain period of time within a certain restricted territory. Non-solicitation is, forget the territory for the most part, could be some nuances under state law that makes that different, but for the most part, forget that, focus on the customers wherever they may be, and that's what's being uh, curtailed for a certain period of time. That makes sense. And going back to your point kind of about the cornerstone of the non-compete agreement, being the protection of confidential information and then also being kind of the protection of the customers or excuse me, the employer's client base as well. You know, I want to kind of transition us into some of the common traps we see as far as drafting these agreements go, uh, because, you know, our listeners are out there working on preparing these agreements, sometimes from an existing agreement that they've had maybe inherited or sometimes even from scratch. And there are a lot of issues that can come up when you're actually trying to put words down on paper and define what it is you're actually trying to protect and prohibit. Um, And kind of the first trap I want to cover um, or potential trap is if an employer has decided they want to go down the route of having a non-compete agreement, should every employee sign one? Um, And if not, why not? Well, it will depend upon the employer. Generally speaking, only those employees that have access to uh, confidential information, uh, customer information, which may or may not be confidential, and especially those who are in a position to build relationship with your client base, those are the ones that are generally speaking the ones who would be more open to having a non-compete agreement. 
And again, remember, there's a difference here between the trade secret and confidentiality, even though they overlap. So even if you don't have a non-compete with those individuals, you may want to have a separate confidentiality agreement. But in terms of non-compete, we generally see them uh, with, uh, with, with higher level management. Um, with executives and and uh, higher level managers, we tend to see them uh, for those companies that use them with the sales force, whether it be the uh, you know the regional, the district, the higher levels, or even the sales representative themselves. Because we all know sales is all about relationships, and it's those relationships that we're trying to protect. Since we as the company have placed them in a position to build the relationships, and we've given them our information about our products and services that could provide an unfair competitive advantage to a other company if uh, they went there um, certainly within a certain period of time uh, after their employment ended. Um, And I guess that's what um, uh, brings me to another point that's really critical, I think, in these days, because we see a lot in the press. We see a lot coming out of government about uh, non-competes really being sort of the... um, uh, you know, they, as they say, the redheaded stepchild out there. And uh, and there's uh, issues about whether or not they should even be allowed in the economy these days because they're stifling competition, according to the criticism. And I think that's a complete uh, simplification, an oversimplification and a misunderstanding of what non-competes are all about. Uh, because what's lost in the context of, uh, of increasing competition is the fact that we also have to protect against unfair competition. Because unfair competition is the true threat to competition. And for any company that does covenants not to compete correctly, what they are doing is protecting against unfair competition. What they are doing is they are taking steps that say essentially this, that we have hired these employees. We've given them our confidential information. They've gone to school on the way in which we do business on our products, our services, everything from our corporate philosophy to our pricing and our financial, uh, um, uh, um, our pricing and our financial uh, data. Um, We've we've given them the client contact that as a general rule, they haven't had before. Even if they had it before, we built upon that client relationship by giving them new or improved products and services in which they can market. And so in return, if we're going to use a non-compete agreement or a non-solicitation agreement or both, what we're looking for is this, that if you leave us, you're not going to take our information and our clients from us, at least not for a period of time to try to solicit them and take them away, but rather that period of time in which is protected by the non-compete or non-solicitation agreement gives us the ability to sort of circle the wagons, to rebuild and, and, and solidify our client relationship in order that you do not take advantage of what we've given you to take our business away from us. And that's, that's really the heart. Uh, of uh, of covenant not to compete law and this whole discussion that's going around the United States right now especially in the government circles is this idea of non-compete clauses and uh, non-solicitation uh, uh, clauses as stifling competition but what's being lost in the discussion is the protection against unfair competition that those agreements provide and if we start opening our doors to unfair competition then it will have so many unintended consequences that I can it's a whole seminar in and of itself and we could do quite a few podcasts on it 
Right, right. I mean, maybe an idea for a future podcast episode. So. Yeah, maybe so, but we should stay with this one. All right, exactly. let me get back real quick, Bill, to what you asked at the start. And that is uh, sort of, should we have them with everyone? And if, if we do or don't, where do we get it from? Do we pull it off the shelf? Do we create it ourselves? Which was kind of your fundamental question that you started with. Great question. Because I would say the number one mistake that we see in covenant not to compete law is when a, a multi-state company in particular simply pulls a non-compete agreement off the shelf or adopts one that they found somewhere that they liked, and then they try to enforce the same agreement across state lines, regardless of that individual state's uh, covenant not to compete law, where that employee happens to be working. And as a general rule, uh, the law that will apply or the law that you need to think about, even if you do have a choice of law provision otherwise, because that may or may not be upheld, is where will that non-compete agreement uh, possibly and likely be challenged? Because if it's going to be challenged in a different state, then you need to make sure that that agreement is at least written in a way that stands a good chance of enforcement in that different state. What works in North Carolina may not work in Illinois. What works in uh, Wisconsin may not work in Tennessee. And often there's a lot of key distinctions in terms of the type of consideration for signing the non-compete and the manner in which the non-compete is, uh, is analyzed in order to determine whether two key fundamental concepts uh, are uh, acceptable. And that's whether or not the time and territory restrictions are reasonable. So that's right. the number one. That's probably the number one place to start is don't just pull something off the shelf unless you've already done the research and you know that what you've pulled off the shelf is going to work in the state or has a good chance of working in the state in which you're going to be using it. Right. And that that is actually a perfect segue into a couple of other you know traps in this area that I'd like to discuss today with you, Ken. Uh, I mean, you touched on the differences in state laws um, why is that such an important issue when it comes to non-compete generally? And then I want to kind of break down um, a few of the particular nuances within states. In other words, uh, you know, why are the why are the differences in state laws, you know, even relevant here? Um, well, it's because these uh, there, there is currently no federal law on covenants not to compete. Certainly, not that affects private employers. And uh, I'm not aware of one that affects uh, public employers. You know, the Defend Trade Secrets Act that came out in 2016 was the first federal trade secret civil remedy out there. But again, we're not talking about confidentiality and trade secret issues in this podcast. Right. What we're talking about is covenants not to compete. And that has built up under state law similar to the way our trade secret law has as well. But each state has its own body of, of covenant not to compete law. Some states are extremely strict on them. Some states, California, for example, uh, does not allow them in the classic pub, uh, private employer situation between employer and employee. Uh, there are other states that are quite liberally open to them. And uh, some of the probably the, the, the key driving issues as to the state by state distinctions are going to come down to two things. First of all, the consideration that's that's um, that's given the payment, if you will, for for entering into one of these agreements. And the second is when interpreting, when enforcing these agreements um, once written, will a state court modify that agreement if it's overly broad and therefore unenforceable, or will they only sever unenforceable provisions, or will they do neither? So okay. uh, those can really come into play in terms of of whether or not you have an enforceable agreement. And uh, probably the best place to start is the consideration. 
Okay. Yeah. So when you say consideration, you mentioned just a moment ago the idea of giving something to the employee for signing the agreement. That's correct. Um, presumably, you know, let's say you're an employer out there, you haven't used a non-compete agreement in the past, you're considering implementing one. Um, you know, are there things to keep in mind for consideration as far as presenting these agreements to let's say new hires versus existing employees. Absolutely. And you've put your finger on the critical distinction in the consideration issue. Um, and that will vary by state. Um, so uh, think of two forms of individuals or, or two classes of individuals, if you will, uh, in terms of uh, coming uh, uh, into a contractual agreement for non-compete or non-solicitation. Okay. One is the new hire that you mentioned and the other are current employees. Now, every state that I know of says that the uh, the offer and acceptance and start of new employment is sufficient consideration to support a covenant not to compete. And why is consideration needed? Because frankly, it's an agreement and you sort of get, you're giving up rights uh, um, in terms of being able to work anywhere you want when you when you leave employment. So you got to pay something for that um for that benefit, you know, the employer does. So uh, for new employees, the act of employment alone is sufficient. And every state that I know of allows that. Now, there can be uh, some, you know, some twist to that. For example, in North Carolina, uh, what has to be done is uh, you've got to make sure that employee by the first day of employment understands that he or she is required to sign a non-compete. And not just that, they, that they're required to sign that, assuming they are required, but you have to have disclosed the material terms of what those restrictions will be. And that can be done, you know, sort of send it to them ahead of time with an offer letter if you do that, or make sure they get it the first day of employment, make sure they understand that, et cetera. Uh, and, and the reason is that, that North Carolina and certain other states that might hold to that same kind of disclosure requirement, uh, the reason they have that is really twofold. One, to make sure that the employee knows that it's a requirement of employment. That's probably the most important thing. But the other helps protect the company as well. For example, uh, in North Carolina, if you have made that disclosure and you can demonstrate it uh, and the employee, frankly, doesn't sign the agreement until a month, two months, six months down the road, uh, that will not matter. Otherwise, it would invalidate the non-compete because you would not have disclosed the material terms. They would have an argument for that. But what that helps prevent against is the forgetfulness of signing or sometimes perhaps even the the deep sixing of a document thinking that, well, if I just hold off signing it, it'll be after my employment starts. And so I might have an argument that it's unenforceable because it wasn't it wasn't signed at the start of employment. So it, allow, it allows some protection for an employer as well. But that's key. No matter where you are, make sure they understand the terms, make sure they understand what the restrictions will be uh, at by the first day of employment. And there are numerous ways that that can be done. Uh, whether it's part of the offer, part of a written um, uh, email or letter that you send them and you enclose it and make sure you reference the fact that it's being enclosed, et cetera. Many ways right. to do that. Okay. Right. And so contrast that now with the current employee. Okay. Now with the current employee, there are two primary distinctions, which are going to be very state specific. One is, um, does the, uh, does the employee, and we're assuming an at-will employee, you know, there's no other contractual agreement out there concerning the employee, okay, right. um, that might govern this. So we're uh, the typical classification of an at-will employee. So assuming that, um, does the employee 
need to have additional consideration, some new form of payment or benefit, if you will, to sign the new non-compete? Or uh, does continuing at-will employment alone suffice for consideration? And let me give you the arguments for and against. Okay, first of all, those states that allow continuing employment alone to suffice as consideration do so under this theory. If you're an at-will employee, it means that you can be terminated or you can leave and resign for any reason or no reason, you know, as long as it's not against the law or discriminatory or anything like that. Uh, And that's with or without notice. So in essence, the at-will employee does not have any tangible property interest, if you will. That's not really the right word, but for for sake of uh, of discussion, just property interest in um, in their employment. They don't have anything because it's at will. And so if we continue the employment that's at will, we've given them a benefit that they're not entitled to receive. Okay? Right. That makes sense. Now, right. And so that's the theory behind it. Now, I will say this, that even those states that allow that sometimes will require that there actually be some type of, you know, a material continuation of the employment in order for that consideration to ring true. For example, you can't uh, hire somebody, I mean, you can't bring an existing employee into the office, give them a non-compete, have it continued employment, and the next day just fire them after you got them um, signed. Now, that being said, uh, there may be an intervening circumstance that would certainly justify that termination the next day. Uh, And for example, they got caught embezzling from the company, you know, or, or, you know, violated some policy that deserved termination. Well, that would be a different story. So uh, again, just some of the nuances that make this area of law so challenging. Uh, but absolutely, but, but that's continued employment as being uh, potentially a sufficient consideration. Other states, North Carolina being one of them, will require additional consideration. And the basic reason for that is you've essentially changed the terms and conditions of employment. You've done it either in one of two ways. Either you've given them a new non-compete that they haven't had before, meaning that they've never signed one before. So now I'm I'm, I'm going to be obligated to having post-employment restrictive covenants. Or it's an updated covenant not to compete with perhaps some additional restrictions defined in a certain way in terms of time or territory or whatever it may be, which would also require a similar type of consideration based on a similar type of analysis of having changed the terms and conditions of employment. Okay. So right, that's the right. primary distinctions no. there. Yeah, I definitely appreciate the breakdown on that. I mean, it sounds like to me, as far as timing of signing of the agreements and and the issue of consideration. Uh, you really need to know what state you're in and, and correspondingly, as you mentioned earlier, um, what state's law is going to control, Absolutely. whether or not you have a choice of law provision in the agreement that might specify a certain state's law. Um, and to your point, you know, where the employee is that is signing this agreement um, to know that state's particular you know, approach to this consideration issue. Yeah. And the conservative employers, the ones who want to increase their chance of enforcement, let's say that you're based in Illinois and your um, and your employee is down here in North Carolina and that's where they're going to work. And you want to have some sense of, um, you know, commonality to your agreements. Well, you could come up with a basic agreement that you simply fine tune for a particular state's law. And you generally fine tune for the more conservative state's law, meaning that if it takes uh, additional steps to have an enforceable agreement in North Carolina than in Illinois, which frankly it does, uh, then uh, then 
for those North Carolina employees, fine tune that base agreement in a way that gives you a better chance to uh, to enforce it in North Carolina. And then if you are, and even if you have a choice of law provision, if the court allows, if it's challenged, and it's probably going to be challenged in North Carolina, uh, if the court follows nor- the choice of law provision and enforces Illinois law, you'll be fine. And if it says, nope, you know, given our conflicts of law and given the situation, we're going to only u- uh, use North Carolina law, then you will have at least uh, protected yourself to the to the extent that you could. That's a really good point. So almost using the most conservative state's law as kind of a common denominator to the drafting of the agreements, if, if right. you're having them in multiple yeah. states. And I'm not saying, yeah, multi-state. And I'm not saying do that for all your non-competes, but you could be specific as to particular states in which the employees are are working and likely would be challenging the non-compete. And so you could fine tune your employees in North Carolina in a way different than Tennessee, different than Missouri, different than Nebraska or whatever. Right. Yeah. But still on, have the same base point, agreement. Right. On that point of, of perhaps, you know, being a bit more conservative than you maybe might want to be at first glance, another issue I want to discuss is, is this kind of scenario. Let's say you're an employer that, you know, has used non-compete agreements before and you've been burned by, let's say, not having sufficient protection. Um, I think it's a very common thing to want to go back to the drafting of the agreement and, you know, amping it up, right? Trying to capture as much as you possibly can uh, to be, again, protective of your company. Talk to me about kind of the issues with that as far as, you know, scope of time and territory restrictions and perhaps trying to broaden those, you know, in response to a past case where something that you had in place was not sufficient. Sure. Another great question. And I'll tell you, that's a that's a tremendously difficult um, dynamic for employers and, and for the lawyers who are drafting the non-competes, because probably one of the greatest hidden traps is to overreach. Right. You know, you've got a client that comes to you and says, we just want to make sure there's we want to lock them down for a year, for two years. You know, and generally speaking, by the way, anything under two years is generally enforceable if everything's written right. Obviously, the shorter the time period, the uh, the better in terms of enforcement. And um, and know too that when we're talking about time and territory, they do tend to operate in inverse relationship to each other. The larger the time period, the longer the time period, I should say, uh, then uh, the um, you know the the greater the territory. I mean, I mean, the shorter, the smaller the territory that the, that is generally protected. Uh, the shorter the time period, the larger the territory that can generally protect it, and that just makes sense. You know, if we're going to protect, if we're a nationwide company and we want to protect um, all of our customer base and whatever, uh, you know, not uh, protect against unfair competition throughout the United States. Well, you might be able to pull that off for six months or so, depending on the on the company, but it'd be hard to do that for two years. Right. That makes sense. Whereas if you're talking 150 mile radius of, you know, Richmond, Virginia or something like that, or Kansas City, Missouri, you might be able to go year two years without uh, the courts blinking an eye. So right. they, they operate in inverse relationship. Right. Uh, but overreaching is probably one of the number one um, um, downfalls of companies when trying to have an enforceable non-compete. And I have a just sort of a rule of thumb that if we're able to draft it in a way that 
essentially protects likely about 80% of your customer base while still protecting your trade secrets and your confidential information, then odds are we've done about as well as we can uh, to, inf- to, uh, to navigate that state's covenant not to compete law in a reasonable way that gives us our best chance of enforcement. Now, that doesn't mean we've got 20% that are just thrown away. That's only saying that we've probably built in enough reasonable terms to where a court realizes, okay, they're not just protecting against competition. They're protecting against unfair competition, which tends to be more focused on this particular employee at enforcement time rather than the company at large. For example, uh, what kind of information was this employee exposed to? Where was he or she assigned? If they were in sales, were they, did they have access and information to uh, the entire customer base? Or was it only the, the customer base of a particular region or a district or perhaps even of a local facility? And was there, was there, uh, was there, were their duties really isolated to a particular um, set of customers within that customer base? Or were they more like a district or region manager or even a VP that had much broader coverage, even if they didn't do a lot of one-on-one sales themselves? Again, that's in the sales, um, uh, in the sales category. So you can see how, 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 how one can look at the protection of your customer base, and you can see a broad base 100% protection. But when you start comparing that employee's duties and responsibilities who signed the non-compete or non-solicitation agreement against what they were actually exposed to, then you start having a narrower analysis. And that narrower analysis tends to be where the court goes in terms of finding whether a time or a territory restriction is reasonable. So by yeah. definition, you're coming off 100%, but in the process, you're doing it for all the right reasons. It's trying to find that thread of reasonableness that gives you your best chance of enforcement. Right. And, and it sounds to me, just, just in hearing you explain that, it sounds to me it kind of, that goes back to this fundamental concept of if we're steering the drafting of the agreement to try to protect against unfair competition, that's where we really want to be. And if we're able to be more precise, you know, kind of using your example of, you know, where is, for instance, you know, the sales employee really focused on as far as customer base goes, the more precise we're able to be, the more, you know, likely a court is to say, okay, this employer is trying to really stop unfair competition, not just competition holistically. Absolutely. Ken, thanks so much for joining me today. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for part two of this episode. Before we sign off, I do want to make our typical request. If you like this podcast, please let us know. Or if you have ideas for topics for future episodes, please also let us know that as well. Please follow us, rate us, and leave us a written review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts so that other folks interested in employment law can find us and follow us as well.